It is truly a great honor and pleasure to introduce Dr. Shai Rosen, my dear brother, friend, educator, and a researcher. We know each other for many years now, and I, I'm just giving you a brief introduction and give the floor to Shai. Um, Shai was born and raised and lives in Israel. He's married, father of two sons, and lives in a small village about half an hour drive from Haifa, lucky man. Professionally, Dr. Shai Rosen is a tourist guide and currently teaches and trains other people in that profession. At the same time, he's engaged in research in various fields related to his areas of interest. He completed his undergraduate studies at the Open University and his master's and PhD in the Department of Land and Israel Studies at the University of Haifa. His master's and doctorate research dealt with the first hundred years of the Baha'i presence in the Holy Land, and we will hear later on about that. As a gift to himself, upon completion of his doctorate, he decided to try and visit every Baha'i shrine and house of worship around the world. And until now, he has visited all three temples, Akko or Akko, Haifa and Montreal, and four houses of worship in India, Germany, Australia, and North America. From the early stages of his research, he started lecturing at international conferences and around the world on various aspects of his research, namely the Baha'i presence in Israel, the Baha'i woman pilgrims from the West, the Baha'is and the German Templars relationship, the influence of the Baha'i territories on shaping the borders between Israel and Syria and more. I will just tell you two little funny stories that he has related to me. He says when he was about 10 years old, his father was working in United Nations in Guyana, where he lived for one year. I'm quoting him now, it's not me. He said, I was blaming Guyanese local English language for my horrible accent and mistakes in English. Till he, in this platform, OZ Whitehead, he heard Terence Simmons, I think Terence is here and he's accepting uh, Shai's confession. Terence uh, Simmons and Brian O'Toole speaking so eloquently in English, he realized that his problem with English language has nothing to do with Guyana. And the second anecdote is that when he was lecturing a non-Baha'i audience, the first question comes to the mind of the audience, who are the Baha'is? We have never heard of them. And when he has got a Baha'i audience, he has got another different problem. They say, what brings a good Jewish boy to talk about the Baha'i faith? Don't know our audience tonight, but I hope 
they will tell us later on what they think about Shai's talk tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Shai Rosen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Farzin. It was excellent. I will, I will add another story, if I may. About 10 years ago, when I started my research, I was invited to talk, give a talk in, the, in Akuto in Italy, the bi-center in Italy. And I went to the bi-center and asked my friend the Baha'is there in, in Haifa, what should they wear? Because Baha'i in Israel always wears tuxedos, suits, even in ties, even in the summer. So I went and I got a blazer, I think it was a jacket or something, and went to Akuto in August, very hot Akuto, and I waited for the, my friends, the bike to came, and then they came everyone with a Hawaiian shirt and slippers. So then I understand that knowing the Baha'is in Israel is not knowing the Baha'is. So, oh, the bus with the funny hats and the, the funny clothes. This is my part of it. Before I start my talk, I would like to thank Kay, Steve, Farzin, Mujan, and all the friends that initiated the Oz Whitehead Firesides. Invite me to join it and allow me over the past year to enjoy almost every week, every Sunday in the middle of the night, and meeting with the bi friends from all over the world. It was a unique opportunity to experience from the sideline the significance of a global bio-community and I honor to present the last lecture in that blessed project. This is, and I will add another thing, this is the lecture that I gave for my first time to Baha'is in Akuto about 10 years ago. As most Baha'i know, there are two Baha'i areas in, in the Holy Land. The first that includes the city of Akko, it's a bourbon, the Akko of the, in the Western Galilee, and in the center is the shrine of Baula, and in the mention, and by mention, and the new shrine of Abdul Ba near the Rivan Garden. The second center area included Haifan, the slopes of Mount Carmel, and in the center of it is the shrine of the Bab. My talk today will be focusing on the third by area, the Jordan Valley about 60 kilometers east of Haifa. This area is located between, and the depth is about 200 meters below sea level, and extended to the shores of the Lake of Galilee between the slopes of the Golan Heights in the east and the parties of the Golan Mountain on the west. Four factors relevant to our case character this area. First, it is an water dry area with plenty of water resources, allowing agriculture growth that preceded the growing season in color in cooler areas. Secondly, it's a border area between the agricultural area and the nomad Brethren territories. Third, this is the birthplace of Israeli joint agricultural settlement, the kibbutz. And the fourth, this is the border zone between English and French mandate after the First World War, and between Israel and Syria after the Israeli War of Independence. During the Ottoman period, there were four main villages in this area. Nukayeb, Asama on the eastern bank of the Sea of Galilee, Samak in the south part, and Umjun on the west bank of the Jordan. These villages were abandoned in the mid-19th century 
the resident as a, by the residents as a result of venue attacks and due to Ottoman authorities that failed to establish the rule in this area. Victor Guerin, the French explorer, described in 1875 those villages as, and I'm quoting each one of them, Nukayeb, remain of a small village built of basalt stones, a Samra ruined site that I've been said before, Samak, an Arab village that was I visited in 1870, and now it's abandoned. Guerin doesn't mention Umjuni, but we can have every reason to believe that the, this village was also abandoned by its inhabited. And in 80, and I'm going back and I say another map, here is Nukayeb, Asamra, Samak, and Umjuni. In 1876, Abdul Hamid II, under the aspirants of the Tanzimat reorganization movement, ascend the throne and become the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Under the reform influence, Abdul Hamid was forced to publish on the 90, December 23rd 1876, a new constitution to the empire known as the Hanun Ilasai, Hanun Ilasai, the basic law. That declares, and I'm quoting in some part of it, all subjects of the empire called Ottomans, without distinguishing whether faith they are professed. Every Ottoman enjoy personal liberty. Personal liberty is all inviolable. No one can suffer punishment under any protect whatsoever. The state will protect free exercise of faith. All Ottomans are equal in the eyes of the law, they have the same rights and all the same duties toward their country without prejudice to religion. The importance of this statement to the black community within the Osman Empire should not be underestimated. The declaration that gave the Bay freedom of worship, freed Baula from its confinement to the walls of the city of Akko and enabled the acquisition of Rizan Garden and other real estate in the city and the area surrounded it. Another action credited to the new Sultan is the enforcement of central government over the empire periphery. That was achieved by sending new immigrants loyal to the Sultan near the borders and pass them against the local nomads. At the southern Syria, that is land of Israel, was part of it. Those new immigrants were the Adjija tribe, known as the Cherkessians which was famous as a fearless warrior. The Cherkessians started to settle the Golan Heights and Transjordan in 1878, and in a few years, the security situation in this area improved dramatically. That improvement in the security situation influenced the resettlement of the villages in the Jordan Valley. Gutlieb Schumacher, the German researcher, reported in 1883 that on the eastern coast of Lake Galilee, there are two villages. Samak and Asamra. The members of the Baal community of Akko at those years took the opportunities that the new Ottoman constitution gave them and start to purchase land plots and mansions wherever it was possible. The wide-scale empty and possibly cheap land plot in the Jordan Valley combined with the good new security situation make this area a good bargain. Starting in 1882, according to Baal tradition, the Baal community purchased land large areas of land in the Jordan Valley. The purpose of the plot was basically to provide food to the urban Bay community at Akko. We should notice that the land plot that the Bay community purchased near Akko was small, and their main purpose was to give Baula a place where he may live, relax, and be inspired by God. The source of money 
sorry. The source of money, although a comparatively small amount of few hundred pounds was required for the purchase of those properties, this was quoted from Lady Bloomfield, the chosen highway. Uh, but I'm looking for it, Baula from Gling of Baula. I won't read it all, but let's see what it says. I'm talking about people that want to donate money for the purpose, for the family. And he's saying, and dedicate the rich and scared territories adjoining the Jordan and its vacancy to the worship and service of the one true God. So where this source of money, pilgrims that uh, believers that donate money and bought land in this area. The first land that the Baha'i community purchased in the Jordan Valley was the village of Asamra at 8082, according to Baha'i local tradition. To support this tradition, we can take the population survey that Gottlieb Schumacher published in 1889, when he wrote that in Asamra there are 36%, 34 of them are Arabs and four of them are Baha'is. On the ignoration of Schumacher from the Baha'is in the Akko area, it's emphasized to the Baha'i that Asamra is significant and can be indicated the importance position that those two, four, those four Baha'is had at the village, probably the ownership of the land. Another village that the Baha'i, that Schumacher mentioned in his survey was Nukeb, in which he states it is small Neglected, neglected, sorry, village on the east shore of Lake Tiberius. The population is 20, among them 18 are Muslims. The other two inhabitants are probably Baha'is, as we know that around this time, Mirza Muhammad Kuli, Baulah, brother, bought some land in that area near the village and became the base for the small Baha'i community of Nukeib. The Baha'i land portraits in Nukeib continue, and we know, for example, that there was a competition between the Baha'is and the Jewish settlers of Bnei Yehuda, not far from there, to purchase about 1,390 dunams of land at Birash Gum on the mountain on the Golan Heights. Prior to Baha'i settlements at Asamra and Nukeyeb, a plot of land was bought in the Baha'i, by the Baha'is at Um Juni, and Mirza Musa, as we know him, Akai Kalam, Baula brother, settled there. When we examine the appearance of the Hushas, the Madahats at Umjuni, the question that arose was why to make use mud bricks when their local tradition is based on building by stones. The question disturbed me until I began to examine the typical construction in large parts of Iran. And it seems that at least at the case of Umjuni, there was a strong influence by, of the Iranian constitution tradition that was introduced to this area by the Baha'is. And if you want to equalize it, I got a picture from Iran, the same buildings. I never went to Iran, it's a one-way ticket, but hopefully in the, a few years, there will be peace and we can go there and can check this idea by itself. According to Mirza Musa, the, children, the Lanka to Umjuni was divided between Mirza Musa and Baula. We can assume that the Baha'i lands at Asamra and Nakeb were also divided between Baula and his brothers. Although we don't know exactly what the parameter of the Baha'i's properties at the journal was in 1922, when Baula passed away, we have sufficient clues to assume that it was thousands of dunams that stretched from Nukeb to the north, along the shores of Lake Tiberius to Umjuni at the west. Imagine the map, all this area. 
Abbas Effendi, known as Abdul Batwa, Baha'is and me, my older son and the way of the lead, as the leadership of the Bay community continued to develop the Bay properties on the Jordan Valley. Schumacher that was mentioned before stated in 1899 that at Kalatil Hassan, the archaeological site of the old Ipus city, Abbas Effendi el-Babi built a warehouse and two huts for the Ba'is of Asamra. And in 18, 1913, he wrote, at Asamra, at Asamra, sorry, the change only a little, there were 40 huts and some public buildings. The residents are growing vegetables. At, Duke, at Nukeb, there are three huts, vegetable garden and four gardens on the bay, on the beach. The land belonged to Abbas Effendi el-Babi, the Baha'is plant orchards of peaches, apples, pomegranates, pigs, oranges, and lemons. The fruit and vegetables that grow those gardens are sent by the train to Haifa and Damascus. But the most important change in the Baha'i settlement at the Jordan Valley at the time of, Abdul, of Abbas Effendi's story was the selling of land at Umjuni to the Jewish Colonization Association, the GCA, in 1903, and the establishment of the village of, of El Adesia and the banks of the Yarmouk River. As mentioned before, part of the Baha'is land that Umjuni was belonged to Mirza Musa Akai Ikalam, Baula brother. After he passed away, Mirza Mujahideen Din, his son, inherited those lands and in 1903 sold them, covering an area of 3,000 dunams to the Jewish Colonization Association and the result of the land in 1903 to the Karen Kemet Israel. A GNSF. The current Kayeme tried to buy the second half of the land from Abbas Effendi itself by Felden, and in 1910 established a kibbutz called Ganya Aleph, the first kibbutz on those lands. The founders of Ganya wrote a few years later, we had a good relation with the owner of the land, probably Mujadadin. He was a Baha'i, a middle-aged unmarried nobleman. He lived in a mud hut like we did. Sometime he would, he would invite us to a cup of coffee. Probably it was not Baha, too Baha'i because if it was Baha'i, we would invite him to a cup of tea. But okay, we managed with coffee. And by the way of, of conversation, talk about the principle of the Baha'i religion. He has a small garden that he watered from the Jordan in his garden, the fruit trees and ornament trees and flowers and a bathing area on the banks of the Jordan. It was a paradise, like Rizwan near Akko. I read this paragraph and I asked myself if it is possible that some of the Baha'i principles have penetrated into the ideology of the kibbutz movement. Is it possible that the principle of equality between men and women between members of the community, the joint discussion on daily life, the value of everyone works as he can and receive as he needs, also fed on by sources and not only on local invention. Think about it. It's a part that we're going to do a research in a few years, planning to do it. In 1901, Abbas Effendi bought the area of two, two, two 9,200 donors from a local Bedouin sheikh on the banks of the Yarbuk River, and six years later invite Baha'is from Iran to immigrate to those lands. Those immigrants, most of them Baha'is from Zoroastrian origin from the city of Yazd, established a village on those land and named it Al-Adesia and Urbest on Baha'i principles. 
1940, at the eve of World First World War, the Bayer-Terzos and the Jordan Valley was at its peak. It consisted four Bayer villages and farms that spread over thousands of dunams of land and produced good crops of fruit and vegetables. The crop was so successful that during two weeks in 1970, by the orders of Abbas Effendi, more than 200 camels loaded with wheat were sent to Haifa to feed the starving population of the city. It's a story that everybody knows. According to the Bible narrative, for feeding the poor, uh, poor Haifa with wheat from the Bible settlement in the Jordan Valley at the end of the First World War, Abbas Effendi received the title of nobility from the King of Britain and become known as Sir Abbas. Surprisingly, there are no mention of this story in the Bible documents dealing with the coronation of Abdullah by Sir Abbas. And the question therefore may be, how will have to be sought in other circumstances? Remember one thing, there is story and there is story. There's a Bible narrative and there are documents. And I consider them both as two wings of one bird. It can't fly with one, bird can't fly with one wing. So we have the history, the facts, and we have the narrative, even though sometimes seems a bit different. After, so why Abdul Ba was received, according to documents, the title of Sir Abbas. After the war, during negotiation between the Great Britain and French Republic on the balancing between the forthcoming British and French mandates, in response to the French mandate, demands that the Golanites, which belong to the Amir Fawu, will be part of the French mandate. And I'm looking at the map. According to the first negotiation, this is the border. The Golanite will be divided between French and Britain, and the Sea of Galilee will be divided also between the, between the French and British mandate. So the French ask, they say we want all the Golanites. So Winston Churchill, the British colon secretary said, I want all that area that belong to Sarabas should be a part of the British mandate. And I'm arguing that to achieve this goal of getting all the lake of Tiberius as part of the British mandate, Sir Abbas Effendi was crowned as a sir. Now he's part of the British Empire. It's not a single man. It's not so a man of another religion. It's part of the British Empire, and we want him as part of our mandate. The result of this order was including of the southeast lake of Tiberius as part of Palestine mandate and determined the part of, part of the international border. Another result of the British mandate was the separation between the Baik community of Tel from the community of Palestine, what we now call Eretz Israel. And look at this map. This is the new and the border between French and British mandate, Israel and Syria until 1967. And you can see that here, this area is the by properties exactly. The borders of the by properties of Sir Abbas. During the year between the death of Abbas Effendi in 1921 and the 1940, 1948 war, the by properties of the Jordan Valley started its decline. The beginning was that 
that proceed process started with the separation of Elad, of El, the village of Elad the Siabites from the rest of the back communities in Akko. It was continued with the sale of the remains of the land at Umjuna, Juni to the Bukharan County Israel in the 90s and 20s, sorry, part of the land of Nukab to the Kidmat Kinneret group at the 30s and part of the area of Asamra in the 40s. On July 6, 1937, Kibbutz and Gev was established near the Bay of Farm at Nukab. Now I want to look at this map. You can see the Bay Farm over here. You can see the new kibbutz. And look over here, there's a new small by cemetery. One is there, one is over here. This cemetery will be the focus of another lecture, of a, another part of my talk later. A few years after starting in this place, a group of engaged members went to visit by community of Ladasia in order to learn how to sustain agriculture in the condition of that area. They described the experience of the visit in the woods. At the entrance to the village was the beautiful bellwood of Akcha trees, through which we are seen diverse fruit tree gardens and beautiful vineyards. Most of the land is planted with gardens and orchards of pomegranates of various, various varieties. We moved to a vineyard. There are different varieties. Everything is arranged on cordons and beautiful proceeds. From there, they will reach the fruit, there is pineapple, apple of all varieties, pears, guyava. We saw bananas standing in the water, half a meter high. In the orchard, there, there are two variants of golden oranges, grapefruits, mandarins, lemons. In the corner of the farm, there is a cane and some vegetables. In conclusion, we saw a perfect mixed farm. There are almost all the fruit trees on the world. They come from Persia. They all make a living from farming. The foundation of the religion is Aritiklera. Okay, it's not the base of religion, but this is what they understood. Talking about work at the Nidial, reminds us quite a bit of Aaron David Gordon, the big ideology of the kibbutz movement. We visited the club, a wonderful building surrounded by gardens and fortresses and ornaments to glory. It is difficult to describe that such in such a remote corner, there's a such wealth and beauty. What he's talking about is this building. This is the club, the community office at the Sia. We saw it before, it was one story high. Now they build another story. During the 1948 war, the area of the southeast shores of Lake Tiberius became a battlefield between the Israelites and the Syrian armies. During the war, the members of the Black community of Asamra and their tenant farmers fled from the area to Syria and Lebanon, and the Bais of Nukaib were ordered by the local Aganam commander to evacuate their farm, and they left for Akko and Khifa. After the war, the question of the Syrian raised in the Israeli-Syrian armistice talks. Part of this area west to, west to the border and between Nukeb and Samak, Samak was held by the Syrian army after the war. And so demanded that this area will be held as a demilitarized zones and that the civilization, civilian residents sorry, should return to their villages. Israel, on the other hand, did, did not desire those, those people, most of them Muslims from Syria, Many Arabs will re return to the territory, started to determine facts and establish Jewish settlements in this area. On August 1949, a group of Nahal 
fighting pioneer called Yulf Sadler that then summer and founded Kibbutz Aon. Most of the kibbutz land were leased from the Baha'i owners. Most of them belonged to the Komen Breaker sect. And along the 1950s, those land were bought by the state of Israel and become Israelis lands. The lands balance at Nukeb were exchanged on the agreement between the Baha'i owners and the state of Israel in 1944 for lands near the shrine of Baula at Bahaji near Akko. And if you know Bahaji, you've been to Bahaji, this was the original estate. They mentioned all this area and the uh, olive trees belong to the village. Uh, our village was changed between Israel and the Baha'is uh, instead of the land in, in Geva. The last episode of the story of Baha'i presence, although some small portion of land at the area of Samak and Al-Hama was under Baha'i ownership until after 1955, the Israeli portraits of El Samra and Nukeb can be considered the end of the Baha'i settlement in the Israeli Jordan Valley. The story of El Adesia on the Jordan side of the Yarmouk ended in the 1960s when the inhabitant of the village, the last Baha'i settlement in the area, left the village and spread all over Jordan. The Baha'i settlement in the Jordan Valley became an unknown part of the local and Israeli history, and all that remained was a small Baha'i cemetery at Kibbutz and gave in some old memories. The last episode in the story of the bi-presence in the Jordan Valley took place on October 18, 1985, when in collaboration between the Universal House of Justice and Kibbutz and Gev, the remains of Mirza Muhammad Kuli and his family were reburied in a new bi-cemetery ignorated into the foot of the Golan Heights. One member of the Kibbutz recorded his impression of this event. The ceremony explained exemplary organization and planning. Uniformed ashes directed the crowd and hand out plans. But above all, someone stood out its special atmosphere. Men in ties and wearing black suits. I have to say, it's the Jordan Valley. It's summer. It's very, 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 very hot place. Many, and you know, understand, this is how I look in Israel. People with ties and even in the summer and lavishly dressed ladies, stand still in the hot sun and held colorful umbrellas. The covers of the tombs and the wall area was decorated with flowers according to the best of the Baha'i tradition. When our delegation arrived, we stopped wide-eyed at the sight of the unusual picture in the landscape. Imagine the kibbutz members, working clothes, no ties, no suits, no jackets, seeing the Baha'is, imagine it. The audience watched in silence and clear past to, and the coffin rested on the stage on a green Persian rug. Now begin a search of elegies and tribute to the saint who accompanies his brothers throughout his hardship and suffering. Afterward, praying and hymns in Arabic and Persian were chant. But the most important speech was heard in English from the widow of Shagwi Fendi, Amatul Baya Rukia Hanum the last leader of the religion. Most of the participants left the ceremony feeling that they were witnessing a historical event. This is the end. So thank you very much for everything and hope to see you soon in the Holy Land. Thank you very much, Shai. Steve, uh, that was wonderful, really fascinating. Shai, that was absolutely wonderful, thank you. Um, funny enough, 
when you came to the Association for High Studies a couple of years ago in Oxford, um, I was working on the day you spoke and my wife said, you missed the most wonderful talk. Uh, I, I, and, and then I, I met you the following day, but I had never heard. Becky told me a few things you'd said, but the, the reality exceeds even her eloquence.